everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Abstract. I'm Dan, here with Derek. How's it going, Derek? I'm good, Dan. I was actually just wondering what you were doing on August 30th. I was, you know, hoping we'd hang out if you were free. So normally being a grad student, I'm free whenever. But on August 30th, I'm actually defending my PhD. And I was curious what you're doing on August 29th. Oh my god, that's so weird. I'm defending my thesis on August 29th. So it sounds like on the 31st, we have to do something wild and fun. Maybe some more podcast episodes. I don't know. Oh my god. (laughs) Or karaoke. (laughs) Or karaoke. That sounds great too. All right, what's your karaoke song? One, two, three, go. I want it that way. Backstreet Boys. Wow, very nice. What about you? All Star by Smash Mouth. That's pretty good too. I had to think whether it's Backstreet Boys or NSYNC, but I'm pretty sure it's Backstreet Boys. Yeah, you're, you're not a real child of the 90s, if you don't know. Well, I've been watching plenty of TikTok, so I've learned all of my 90s culture again now. We should move beyond the abstract to TikTok, and then our episodes will only be like two minutes long. <laughs> we do need to set up a TikTok presence. I think that'll be for next month. But for now, we have a really cool episode covering two papers and not our normal one. So today we're talking about the effect of COVID on the brain. So COVID's obviously best known for its effect on the respiratory system, but it's being increasingly appreciated that it affects many parts of the body. And one of them is the brain. So these are two studies that have come out recently taking different approaches to the same question of what's the effect of mild COVID in particular on the brain. Not COVID that ends you up in the hospital very sick, but maybe you would just have it home and get over it. So the first paper is called SARS-CoV-2 is associated with changes in brain structure in UK Biobank. This is coming out soon in the journal Nature, and it's from research groups in the UK, primarily based at Oxford. So Derek, before this study, what was known about the effect of COVID infection on the structure of the brain in humans? So there were a number of studies looking at abnormalities in the brains of people infected with COVID. The range of findings across many sections of the brain, almost all of these studies had a couple of common problems. So first of all, They were based on a pretty small sample size, and this is because scanning brains is really, really expensive. If any of you listeners have ever gotten, like, an MRI and then seen the bill afterwards, like, it's really, really expensive. Second of all, and probably most importantly, all of these studies were kind of a bit all over the place, so it was hard to really firmly establish that covid was causing the changes that were observed as opposed to some other risk factor. Okay, so it sounds like a problem with the previous brain scanning studies in COVID is small sample size and study design that was a bit all over the place. What would be an ideal study design here? Sure, so it's always kind of a 
good practice to think about what would be the ideal study. And the ideal study is not one that we can always perform because it's not always ethical. And this is kind of one of those cases. So the ideal study is a randomized controlled trial where you randomly select some people to get infected with COVID and others to not get infected with COVID. And then afterwards, you would look for differences in brain structures down the line. And obviously, we can't randomize people to be infected with COVID, but we can study people who were infected with COVID at some point and see how their brains changed. The key point here is we'd want to know about their brains before infection and their brains after infection. Brain scanning once is expensive, so brain scanning again is really, really expensive and a really high bar. Beyond just getting scanned twice, we'd also want some other information. Well, actually, basically, literally everything about these people at baseline. So maybe the people who ultimately would get infected had some pre-existing health condition that interacted with their COVID infection, and maybe that's what caused the brain changes. These are all factors we would like to control for, and we can only do that if we know about it. So to summarize, the ideal study design of a randomized trial isn't really possible. So instead, what we need um, are a bunch of people who got infected with COVID and those who didn't, and a brain scan before and after infection. And in addition to that, basically a lot of information about the health and lives of these people. So that sounds like a really high bar. We need multiple scans and just a creepy amount of information about these folks, their health comorbidities and everything else. Does such a resource even exist? You're in luck, Dan. It turns out it does. And it's one of the most important resources in biomedical research today. And somehow I don't think we've talked about it on the pod before this week, but it's called the UK Biobank. So the UK Biobank was created about 20 years ago, and it's a collection of about half a million adults in the UK. The Biobank has every piece of information about the participants you can imagine. So not only detailed health records, but also blood samples to measure molecules in the blood, genomes of all the participants, and of course, imaging data on a lot of them, including of the brain. So this resource is continually updated, and it's been a really important tool for learning about COVID risk factors since many people in the UK Biobank have recently been infected. That's really phenomenal to have that kind of resource with all of that rich, diverse information. I'm curious how the team designed a study to look at the effect of COVID on the brain, given the UK Biobank as a resource. The UK Biobank resource allowed them to create the first large-scale study of the effect of COVID on the brain with baseline scans. So they studied 401 cases who became COVID positive between scan 1 and scan 2, and then 384 controls who did not become COVID positive in between the scans. I'd mentioned being concerned that the two groups might differ on some other factor that could be causing the observed difference between the scans. The researchers looked across more than 6,000 factors relating to lifestyle and environmental exposure, health-related outcomes, and dietary patterns, and found no differences, meaning we know that these things would not be contributing to differences that we might see on brain scans. That makes sense. So with the UK Biobank resource, they were able to 
have scans before and after infection, and also control for thousands of other factors that might confound the association that might make the infected folks different from the uninfected folks and could mess up the downstream association. Exactly. So given that they'd controlled for all of these factors and had made sure that that wasn't at play, confounding the ultimate result, what neuroimaging patterns were the researchers looking for? The researchers performed two sets of analyses. So First, they performed a specific analysis of changes associated with the part of the brain that has to do with smell. It's pretty well established that people often lose their sense of smell during a COVID infection, so they want to see if any of the parts of the brain associated with smell looked different in infected people. They also performed a much broader analysis looking across all different regions of the brain. Okay, so it sounds like they performed a specific analysis looking at the association of loss of smell in the brain, and then a more agnostic brain-wide scan. So what did they find with these two different approaches? Consistent with the suspicion that COVID impacts the part of the brain involved in smell, they found markers of tissue damage in smell-related brain regions on the brain scans. On the brain-wide analysis, they also found a greater reduction in overall size of the brain. So people infected with COVID overall had smaller brains compared to uninfected people. It's worth noting that the changes they observed are pretty modest, so it's also not seen in all infected patients. When it is seen, it's really just a couple of percentage points in change. It's not like the brains are like half the size or anything, just a few percentage points. But with a really large number of people in the analysis, these are the sorts of subtle changes that they could detect. And that's kind of one of the strengths of having such a large database. Another really interesting finding was in differences in cognition after infection, where people infected showed worse performance on a cognitive test of working memory. So this is consistent with the fact that a quarter of COVID survivors experience some sort of cognitive impairment, and you've probably heard of this, it's commonly called COVID fog. So the researchers did a lot of work to try to convince us that COVID infection caused these changes. But could they figure out how or even why COVID infection caused these changes that you just described on brain scan? Yeah, that's a great question. So one thing the study didn't do was look at how COVID specifically was causing these brain changes or what we call the mechanism. They, you know, had a few guesses. They hypothesized that maybe COVID could bind to the smell neurons in the nose and travel backwards into the brain and cause damage that way. Another hypothesis they threw out there was that COVID could block those smell neurons and that the lack of smell input into the brain or a type of sensory deprivation could cause the changes. Or another guess they had was that the infection could otherwise cause immune activation in the brain called neuroinflammation, which can also lead to these changes. So these are kind of the leading hypotheses surrounding this, but keep the last one in mind, particularly for the next study. Will do. So at the end of the day, 
How convinced were the researchers that COVID caused these changes? It's possible, and it's something the researchers discuss. Most likely, it's COVID, but without doing that sort of randomized control trial that we were talking about previously, we really can't ever be 100% completely sure. That makes a lot of sense. So it sounds like a strength of this study was that it was done in humans and there were multiple scans and all of these other factors were controlled for and it was a large study. So we're pretty sure that COVID infection is causing these really interesting changes in brain structure and cognition, but we can't be 100% sure that COVID is the factor that's causing these changes as opposed to something else. And for a better sense of COVID definitely causing the changes that we observe, we're now going to a study not in humans, but in mice. Now we're moving on to something that's a little bit more in my realm. This next study answers a lot of the questions the first study raises, and this study is called Mild Respiratory SARS-CoV-2 Infection Can Cause Multilineage Cellular Dysregulation and Myelin Loss in the Brain. So this is actually a preprint on BioArchive, and it's from the Manje group at Stanford and the Iwasaki group at the Yale School of Medicine. And I think Yale, that's the one in Providence, right? <laughs> you got it. Before we start, I wanted to mention that this paper is, again, a preprint, which means it's still under peer review at a journal for a publication. Why might someone put a paper on a preprint server like BioArchive or MedArchive? And there's a few reasons. The first is it gets the information out to the public sooner. Peer review frequently takes months, often years. Tell me about it. <laughs> so slow. I know, right? As two PhD students trying to finish their work, I'm just like, all right, let's like speed this up a little, please. I'm trying to get out of here. Scientists can talk forever about peer review. Yeah, but it's really a shame because this entire time, if your work isn't posted as a preprint, it's essentially shielded from the public and no one except you, the editor and the reviewers know about this work like at all. That's right. That's one of the big reasons. And the second reason is that preprint servers are free for anybody to access. So like if you have a phone or a computer, you can go on the internet and access these studies as opposed to journals, which are frequently behind a paywall and they're pretty expensive. They can often be like over $100 just to read a single paper. Don't get me started on taxpayer-funded research being accessed by taxpayer dollars at journals. Don't get me started. That's for another day. I know Dan over here is like living in basically a closet in Boston on a graduate student stipend. He's like, I can't afford to be paying hundreds of dollars for papers. Thankfully, that's where the entire Harvard endowment goes. It goes right to... <laughs> nature to read the science. Yeah, I mean, just about, honestly. So, of course, with preprint servers, there's the concern that these articles are not peer-reviewed. There's really no verification that the science in the paper is rigorous. That's the whole purpose of peer review. But one way to vet the article is by the reputation of the research team. So today we're fortunate to be talking about a paper co-led by two really well-known and really amazing female scientists, Michelle Manji. 
um, who is a physician scientist at Stanford who studies the interaction of the immune and nervous system, and Akiko Iwasaki, who's a really well-known immunologist at Yale who studies viral immunity and has been really on the forefront of COVID research over the past two years. They really are a dream team. I've got to know them a little bit just from their presence on Twitter over the last year or two, and especially um, Akiko Iwasaki has been the most or one of the most prominent COVID researchers and an important voice in the public about understanding how the immune system interacts with COVID. So it's really exciting to be talking about a paper written by her and by Michelle Manji, who's another great physician scientist. So Derek, what was the primary motivation for this study? One of the most common lasting and debilitating symptoms of COVID is COVID fog, which is persistent cognitive impairment. The symptoms of COVID fog resemble another disease, and it's actually what often happens after chemotherapy for cancer. The formal name for this is Cancer Therapy-Related Cognitive Impairment, or Chemobrain for short. Some previous studies have looked at Chemobrain and found that chemotherapy can cause the immune system to become activated in the brain, and the immune activation in the brain, called neuroinflammation, can decrease the function of important parts of the brain, including in a part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is important for forming new memories. Given the similarities in symptoms between COVID fog and chemobrain, the researchers hypothesized that after COVID infection, the immune system becomes activated in the brain and causes inadvertent damage to the brain, leading to the cognitive impairment seen in COVID brain. So they recognize the similarity of cognitive effects coming from mild COVID and from chemotherapy and hypothesize that the effect of COVID in the brain might be similar to that side effect from chemotherapy. So given this, how did they go about studying the effect of COVID on the brain? You can't see me, but I'm doing a little dance because their primary tool was a mouse model. As opposed to studying COVID in humans, you can give COVID to mice, though I don't think it's something the mice really appreciate that much, but it's one of the tools we have to study the pathogenesis of COVID. And these labs already had a mouse model of mild COVID, where they delivered COVID through the nose, just like how humans often get it. And the mice only get mild symptoms, no change in body weight, no changes in behavior, and no evidence of COVID in the brain. And I think this is a pretty important model because you have to remember the vast majority of COVID cases are mild. A lot of people get it and they might not even know they got it because they're minimally or not symptomatic at all. That's a great point. And especially as we move from a pandemic to an endemic phase of COVID, as COVID becomes a virus that we are hopefully learning to live with and doesn't disrupt our lives all that much for most people, this seems like a really important paradigm to study to understand the effects on the rest of the body of even mild infection. So if the mice seem fine and there was no evidence of COVID virus in the brain, what actually happened to the mice in this model? 
So they looked a little closer and there were a few signs in the mouse brains that the immune system was actually being activated. There were a lot more immune cells scattered all around the brain and previously these immune cells had been shown to impair the activity of the hippocampus, that part of the brain involved in forming new memories. They also found the same thing here, that there was decreased creation of new neurons in the hippocampus in mice with COVID infection. So it sounds like in mild COVID infection, without any virus in the brain, there's inflammation and decreased function of parts of the brain. Is there any reason to think this happens in humans as well? The researchers were able to access blood and tissue samples from humans with COVID, and they found a few patterns that were pretty similar. They found more immune activation in the brains in people with COVID. That's really interesting. So it sounds like they saw similar patterns in these human samples. So Derek, what does this study suggest as potential therapies for COVID fog, this long-lasting cognitive impairment that is uh, seen with even mild COVID. It's pretty well established that many of the bad things that happen when you get COVID are due to your immune system getting too energized. This is definitely true in the lung, which is why medications like steroids are really good at preventing um, a lot of the damage caused by COVID. And what's happening in the brain may be another case of that. And it suggests that drugs that decrease inflammation in the brain could potentially also be used to prevent the cognitive impairment associated with COVID infection. Okay, so now we've done all the hard work to go through these two studies. Listener, you've bared with us for not one, but two studies, hopefully enjoyable. But now we get to think about what these studies together can tell us. So the first thing I wanted to talk about was, in general, what we can learn from studies in humans compared to studies in model organisms. So here, there was the analysis of humans in the UK Biobank with the brain scans, and then the study in mice where researchers gave the mice COVID. So Derek, what do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of these two different approaches for studying the effect of mild COVID on the brain? Human studies and model organism studies offer different strengths, which is why it's often important to pair them together or to have people working on both types of studies. Our ultimate goal is to understand disease to help humans, and by studying humans, you're on that path. But as we discussed, there's a lot of ethical limitations with humans. You can't just willy-nilly perform any experiment you want on them, just like how we can't infect people with COVID and then study their brains. The strength of the brain scan study was that it was done on humans, so we know this is something that's relevant to us. But their major concern was that there was some confounding factor that they weren't aware of. They tried their best to control for those, but in the absence of, again, doing that randomized control trial, they really can't definitively say. On the other hand, there is no worry that some other factor is causing the differences that we see in mice. 
there is one difference and one only whether they got infected or not. But then the question is, how well does this mouse model actually reflect what's going on in humans? That makes sense. So with the model organisms, you can randomize the mice to get COVID or not, and really study in mechanistic detail how the infection with COVID impacts the brain. But of course, you're studying COVID in mice. Maybe this doesn't apply to humans. Exactly. Lastly, I was curious if you thought that the effect of COVID on the brain here, if you had to speculate, do you think this is a specific effect of COVID on the brain or maybe a more general effect of neuroinflammation that might come from other diseases or chemotherapy treatment like they discuss in the second study as well? Yeah, that's a really great question. And honestly, it's hard to say, and I don't really know exactly. It seems like a lot of the effects here are due to inflammation, which isn't specific to COVID. There's a lot of different things that cause inflammation, but there's so much COVID right now. That's kind of why we're interested in this. But again, studies in the future, both in humans and in model organisms, might be able to answer this more fully. I agree. And I think we're appreciating more and more the diverse ways that the immune system can affect the brain, uh, leading to psychiatric disease, neurodegenerative disease, or here the consequences of COVID infection. And I think this is an area that we'll see a lot more work in going forward. As someone who got COVID, I think this is probably a good explanation for my low step scores and a lot of failed shelf exams that are definitely coming in the future. You can just say it, your defense. You may have been amazed by the work that I did, but just think if I didn't get COVID, I would have 10 nature papers. So that's what you should judge me on. Exactly. <laughs> All right, Derek. Well, thanks so much for taking us through not one, but two studies today. And I think we learned a lot about um, how even mild COVID can affect the brain. And I think it was a really interesting conversation. So thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.